Thanks, Nate. Oh, that's loud. And uh, what, a, what a great passage for Nate to read, huh? It's <laughs> just sitting there thinking about it and, uh, yep. We can chat later about that, mate, if you want. Um, anyway, am I doing the right thing, Ben? Yep, good. Excellent, because I often don't. But anyway, um, here we are, you know, as we come to a passage of Scripture that I've been looking forward to teaching all year. Widely considered, I guess, one of the toughest passages in the Bible, but where else would I rather be, of course? Um, But can I say, and Dave's just set it up so nicely for us, really, in helping us to think rightly about this as we come to it. We ought not be fearful uh, of God's Word and what it teaches us because we know that God is concerned for our good. Uh, He's for us, not against us. Uh, So we can have confidence that what he says in his Word in the Bible is going to be what is best for us, not just to hear, but also to obey. We also know that uh, dismissing God's word, uh, God and his word, never actually ends well, uh, either for us or for his church. That doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't challenges for us as we hear God's word. Of course there are. One of those challenges is simply being able to understand it properly. Uh, Another challenge is being willing to accept it. Uh, Our culture actually affects how we think about a lot of things. Today's passage is is one of those areas where our culture has had a lot to say for a while now. Um, The value of men and women and the roles of men and women in our society and in the church have been passionately debated. And not only that, but the, the meaning of gender itself Uh, seems to be up for grabs at the moment uh, in current debates uh, around same-sex marriage, transgender, bisexuality, those kind of things. And so the waters have been and continue to be seriously muddied. And because these issues are mixed with strong emotions and personal fears and concerns over identity, we find ourselves on very tricky ground when it comes to speaking the truths of God's word while seeking to assure people that we also genuinely love and care for them as we do. See, disagreement on any issue is considered at best unloving, but generally it's considered a lot worse. And so it can actually be difficult to speak from God's word and get a fair hearing. As a speaker, I need to do everything in my power to be sensitive to people's real concerns. But it's also important that hearers actually listen. Uh, Martin Luther once said that if I preach the Holy Scriptures with all my might, but remain silent on the one issue that the world is attacking, then I have failed to teach the Word of God. There are, I think, several uh, biblical truths being attacked by the world at the moment, and this is certainly one of them. And so let's stop for a moment and ask God to help us as we seek to sit under His Word and allow him to speak to us today. So let's pray together as we do that. Our gracious God, as we've already been reminded, uh, the things that we read tonight, our culture that we live in, uh, has very different views perhaps than what we read in your word. But you are God and we are not. And we pray, Lord God, that this evening we might sit under your word, hearts open, willing to listen to what you have to say. Father, please give us clarity of mind and an openness of heart and willingness to hear you speak. And please teach us 
what is good in your world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, today, as uh, Dave has already helpfully um, helped us understand, we're moving on to a new section uh, in Paul's letter that goes right through to the end of chapter 14. Uh, The main idea is uh, the way the Corinthians are conducting themselves, not in the marketplace. Uh, Now, particularly, it's in the church gathering that he's concerned with. And in verse 2, Paul, you notice there, commends them for maintaining the traditions that have been delivered to them. Now, you know, sometimes people say, well, what, what traditions is he talking about? Traditions, he mean, by traditions, he means the body of trustworthy teaching that has been passed on by the apostles. But while Paul is keen to acknowledge where they are doing well, as he does here, he commends them, there are further things that are disturbing due to the arrogance of some of the Corinthian believers, as we've already seen throughout Corinthians so far. And so in verse 3 of chapter 11, Paul spells out the principle behind the behaviour that he is seeking to correct in this passage. And it's important that we understand the principle because the practice that Paul calls for is almost never practised in churches today. I know it isn't some, but rarely. And if we're, if we're not going to operate the way that Paul says that all churches operated in his day, then we ought to have good reasons why. Uh, but before we get to the principle, let's just see what they're actually asked to do. Uh, in verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul is talking about head coverings. Um, there's some debate over what specifically Paul means, but most commentators agree that he seems to be referring to to the wearing of some kind of veil or some kind of headscarf. Uh, when men pray, he says, or prophesy, they shouldn't have a veil or a headscarf on. But when women, uh, but when they pray or prophesy, they should have a veil on. And Paul's concern is that if a man prays with his head covered, he is dishonouring his head. While, on the other hand, if a woman prays with her head uncovered, she is dishonouring her head. Now, one of the difficulties in this passage is understanding just what Paul is referring to when he uses the term head. Uh, So let's go back to the principle in verse 3 where Paul first uses the word. Uh, Verse 3, hopefully it's up there on the screen, otherwise hopefully you've got your Bibles with you. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the issue here is about headship in the context of relationship. And he starts with the one, the relationship that we understand best. That is, the head of every man is Christ. Now, head usually refers to authority or rule. Uh, We see that idea expressed in several places uh, in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, I think I have it on the screen there for you. It says... Uh, Verse 23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is is himself its saviour. And then it goes on in the next verse to say that, therefore, the church submits to Christ. Christ is the head of the church in that he is its saviour and ruler. Or in um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, uh, we read there in verse 22, and God put all things under his, that is, under Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Again, it's a statement about Jesus' rule and authority over the church. And Jesus sets the model 
for the headship of husbands towards their wives. Husbands, he says, just like Christ, lay down your life for your wife. That's the way his headship is to be exercised. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 28, I don't have it on the screen for you this time, but husbands, it's a well-known passage, but husbands are to so put themselves out for their wives that she will be presented pure and spotless before Christ on the last day. A man's authority over his wife is always for her good. And it's crucial that men hear this, especially as this teaching is being blamed by some as leading to the abuse of women by Christian men. I'm aware that most of you perhaps aren't married, but you probably will be one day. So let me say this as clearly as I can, and it doesn't matter if you're married or not, can I say, but let me say this as clearly as I can to the men. If you ever use this teaching on headship to dominate, to control, to suppress, if you ever use it to attack or verbally or physically abuse or to harm in any way, if you ever use it to put down or to belittle your wife or any woman, can I say, you are in serious violation of God's will for headship. You are deserving of God's judgment. And you are bringing the gospel that is given to save people into disrepute. Do not do it. But can I also say, this is a very good doctrine. This is part of God's good purpose for loving and healthy marriages and for well-ordered families. And Christian women need to be just as committed to it as Christian men. And so that we know that uh, this honouring of our heads isn't just some kind of cultural issue, Paul reminds us that the head of Christ is God. Now, some actually balk at this idea that God could be the head of Christ if they are equally God as the Bible clearly teaches they are. It actually exposes a flaw in our thinking about equality. And yet, before we go there, um, can God be the ruler of Jesus? Well, I want to say, yes, he can. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 17, again, not on the, on the, on the screen, but in Ephesians 1, verse 3, 17, write it down, he is described as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is the God of Jesus. And Jesus himself, that he didn't come to do his own will, but God's will. Now, that idea is actually confirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, where Paul says, when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. See, Jesus submits himself voluntarily to the Father's authority. The principle here is that all should bring honour to their heads. So Christ brings honour and glory to his heavenly Father, and men and women should imitate his perfect example by seeking to honour their heads as well. Now, the way that this relationship of headship is demonstrated in the church gathering is through head coverings. Now, I think it's fair to say that the context here is in the church gathering, given his reference to this practice in all the churches of God in verse 16. 
But it's also, of course, in the context of this whole section up to chapter 14, which includes uh, when they're gathered for the Lord's Supper, as well as the use of spiritual gifts and prophecy within the church. And it's also worth noting that the words used for man and woman here are the same Greek words used for husband and wife, and the two are used interchangeably here. It's the context that helps us understand exactly how to use them. Now, that's because I think um, this is about how we honour Christ as men and women, not just as husband and wife. Otherwise, the passage I don't think makes sense. That would mean that a man could have long hair and a woman could cut her hair short until they were married, and then they'd have to stop that when they were married. But I think that contradicts verses 14 and 15 here in this passage. But either way, whatever we think, it's clear that this passage is about gender differences. It's sad, I think, that we feel a little awkward, perhaps even as if we're doing something wrong by talking about gender differences. There's nothing wrong with gender difference. It's good. In fact, it's part of the very good that God created. But today, more than ever, gender differentiation is very unpopular, particularly in our mainstream media. We should fight against wrongful gender discrimination. There's no room for that. But this passage is about the differences. And that should be okay. We ought to be able to deal with it honestly and fairly according to God's word, not our prejudices, nor our fears. See, Paul is concerned about a violation of the principle in verses 4 to 6. Uh, look, let me just pick it up there from verse 4. He says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now notice, um, this is not about what men and women can or can't do in church. Uh, it's expected that both men and women will pray and prophesy in church. But men are to do it without covering their heads, and wives, or perhaps women, should do it with head covered. The man dishonours his head if he covers it. That is, he dishonours Christ, who is his head. But it might actually also mean that he brings shame upon his own head, or perhaps it means both of those things. For the women, of course, it was, off, it was the opposite. She was to cover her head while praying or prophesying in church so as to honour her husband and not dishonour him. And now Paul thinks women and men should both pray and prophesy in church. But both are to have an attitude and demeanour that honours their head. Men are to operate in a way that recognise, recognises and honours Christ's headship. And women are to operate in a way that recognises and supports male headship. But what are the foundations upon which Paul builds his argument? Well, let's just pick it up there at verse 7. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Right. Well, I'll fudge around angels in a minute, uh, but let's first have a look uh, at the argument in verses 7 to 9. 
Uh, it's an argument, notice here, from creation. It, was, it has to do with our created purpose. Uh, man was created in the image and for the glory of God. Uh, woman was made for the glory of man. It's an argument you might recognise that comes from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, woman was made for man. I think the argument goes that men were pretty useless on their own, uh, but I think the Bible puts it a bit more nicely than that. Uh, that is, God saw that the man, Adam, needed a helper fit for him, Eve. Woman was made because of man and out of man. Now, as a male, I realise that this part of the argument can be hard to hear. But it really is very important in understanding God's purposes. The term man can sometimes be used to describe the male person, or it can simply refer to mankind, uh, both man and woman as one humanity. We might say just humankind. It's mankind in Genesis chapter 1 who are together as male and female made in the image of God. It's mankind, both male and female, who is the greatest in all God's creation. And by making mankind rulers over his creation, we both, as men and women, reflect and share in the glory of God. The problem is, of course, that we all fall far short of God's glory, don't we? I mean, the glory of God is distorted in sinful human beings. But in Jesus, we see the glory of God. And it's Jesus who now brings many sons to glory through his death and resurrection. And so as we embrace Christ and become more like Christ, we both share his glory and we seek to reflect it. We share a marvellous unity as men and women, mankind, created in God's image for his glory. So what does Paul mean when he says that man is the glory of God while woman is the glory of man? Well, Paul is, is simply expressing the differentiation that God also makes between man and woman within mankind. And he explains in verse 8, notice what he says, God made Adam directly from the dust of the earth, but Eve he made from Adam's body. We read the same thing in Genesis chapter 2. And then in verse 9, God doesn't make woman for himself, he makes woman for the man. Now again, in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that she was made as a helper fit for him. The woman is therefore to reflect and share in the man's glory. Now listen to how Philip Jensen expresses this relationship. He says, the greatest thing about the life of man is woman. The highest, most treasured possession he has in all the world is his wife. It's a wonderful way to put it, isn't it? And because she was created from man and for man, a wife is to bring glory to her husband. She is to honour him and acknowledge his headship. Now, one of the arguments made for the wearing or the non-wearing of head coverings in church is to do with the display of glory or honour. If a man wears a head covering while he prays or prophesies in church, uh, he is covering the glory of God that is to be displayed in the presence of God, thus bringing dishonour to his head, to Jesus Christ. But because woman is the glory of man, she must be covered up, because in the presence of God, all glory should go to God, not to man. Or it may simply mean that a woman honours man by wearing a head covering, because by doing so, she is acknowledging man's headship. 
And she's maintaining the distinction, if you like, that God has ordained between the sexes. Now, you're probably aware that this is one of those passages that is dismissed uh, because it is culturally irrelevant. Submission by women uh, is no more necessary than the wearing of headscarves, which we've had no problems doing away with. But while the cultural expression may no longer be relevant, the principle cannot change because it's grounded in the way that God has created us. It's just as true in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century, no matter what different tracks our culture takes. I mean, our culture has been trying to sell us the lie that headship and submission are dirty words, that they're oppressive and bad for us, but that's a lie. They're absolutely essential to God's good and loving created order. We have to see the, through the world's lie and somehow, that somehow God's purpose in headship and submission, we need to see through the lie that it's bad for us. The differentiation in the two sexes that God has made is for our great good and unity with one another. The relational fabric of our society is actually being torn apart by a worldly view of feminism that seeks to obliterate the good distinctions that God has made. And it's been ruined by wicked men who abuse their God-given authority over their wives that should always be exercised in love for the good of their wives. The distinctions are part of God's good design. It's good for both women and men. Now, clearly, uh, one of the bizarre claims to us, at least, is Paul's reasoning because of the angels. Everyone finds it hard to be sure exactly what Paul is referring to here. I've come across four suggestions, which I think just tends to prove that no one is completely sure. Um, some of those are cl clearer than others. You'll even notice in the footnote of your, your Bibles, one of, the, one of the options that are there. But can I say, it doesn't really affect the clarity of this passage so rather than me spending a whole time, a lot of time taking you through each one of them, I'm going to leave it for your own further research if you're so inclined or you want to get in touch with me and I can uh, let you know what those are or where to find them and read up on them. But in case anyone is inclined to misread this principle of headship, Paul does some clarifying in verses 11 and 12. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. It was easy to be misunderstood in Paul's day, just as it's easy to be misunderstood in our day. Just because Paul is addressing one aspect of the man and woman relationship doesn't mean that that's all there is to be said about the man and woman relationship. And so he makes an important qualification here. That is, neither men nor women are independent from one another. Their difference, differences do not make them lack equal value nor equal importance in the sight of God and to each other. Uh, women may need to honour their husbands and submit to their leadership and express that differentiation in church. But men are to honour women for the dignity that, he is, that God has given them and the role that they play as bearers of God's image with man. Well, in these final verses, uh, Paul goes back to his main concern in this passage, and that is the wearing of head coverings. Uh, let me just pick it up from verse 13. He says, Judge for yourselves 
Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, Paul is saying that there is a natural and instinctive sense of right and wrong that God has planted in us with regard to the sexes. In other words, there's a sense in which we naturally understand that there's a difference between men and women. And it's a great perversion of our modern climate to try and blur the lines of the sexes as if they are irrelevant. Every society has its own way of naturally differentiating the sexes. It says nothing about worth or equality. It rightly acknowledges differences that are good. A woman shouldn't appear as a man, even before God. We actually need to, to grasp the importance that we were made to be different so that we would be united. That's why the Bible sees homosexuality as wrong, just as it does transgender. God is against women or men dressing up as each other. Now, that doesn't mean that they, there aren't some very real issues that people face in these areas that deserve our compassion and care and understanding. They can hear someone like me saying these kind of things and think we are personally against them, and we're not. We ought to do our best to express genuine love and care towards those with same-sex attraction without denying or watering down the truths about the God-given created order. See, God made the gender difference and it needs to be expressed in every culture and especially in relation to God. In verses 13 to 15, uh, it indicates that hair is one way that the differences between men and women are expressed. And the wearing of a head covering by a woman in Paul's day expressed the God-given sense that women and men are different. Now, one of the arguments against this idea of headship and submission is the claim that it suggests inequality. But Paul's claim elsewhere that we are all one in Christ Jesus, as he does in Galatians, while it speaks of our equality before God, it doesn't obliterate male and female. The claim is that if two people are equal before God, then no one should be the head of the other and no one should have to submit. So headship implies superiority, while submission implies inferiority. But that, that, that view is actually a complete misunderstanding. Both father and son are equal, and yet the son submits to the father who is head over the son. If the traffic lights were out on your way here, then you might need to submit to the policeman who tells you to stop. Not because you're inferior to him, but because of the nature of your relationship in that moment. Submission is not a statement about equality. It's about the nature of the relationship. Even though all are one in Christ, yet as Christians, men must be men and women must be women. Men must minister as men and women must minister as women. And men must honour Christ, their head, and women must honour their husbands as heads, and in so doing, they too honour Christ. See, the church should actually reinforce what our home life is about in terms of men and women, husbands and wives, in relationship. 
It's difference in relationship which enables unity. We need each other. When God looked on man, he saw that it was not good for him to be alone. And so how good that he made a helper fit for him. We need each other. And we need each other to be whom God has made us to be so that together we will honour our Heavenly Father. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we um, spend this time together looking at a part of your word that we, uh, we recognise is, is hard for us to um, hear in a culture that is so um, different to the way that we think, the way that you teach us is good and right in your creation. Now, Father, we thank you that you care enough about us to make us as man and woman in your image, sharing uh, your glory. We thank you, Lord God, that you've made us for each other so that the differences actually make the unity that we have so precious and special. And so, Father, rather than fear um, the concerns of our world, world, help us to recognise the goodness in your purposes in the way that you have created us. Help us to rejoice in them and see them as the good gift of God as they truly are. And so, Father, we continue to pray that as we live our lives in a world that uh, really um, you know, has turned their back on you, that does not want to listen to you and your ways, and your will. We pray, Lord God, that we might have the courage to keep living for you, but with great generosity of heart, great love and care and compassion for those who don't yet know you. And we pray that you would help us to do that each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.